0: that have been involved in dark arts are just as forgiven and as adopted as those religious Jews who have kept themselves so pure. There's this radical oneness, this radical equality that we all have, whether we are male or female, whether we are uh, high-bred or low-bred, whether we're born in the right neighborhood or the wrong neighborhood, we're equal before God. We're adopted into his family. And so then Paul comes in, and if you remember the end of last week, he said, now submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. It, it would be easy, and some of the Gnostic movements and even some Christian movements today then move into anarchy. They say, we're all equal, so throw the rules out the window, right? We're adopted, we're all equal, so therefore there's now no more structure, there's no more authority, there's no more order in our social relationships. And Paul says, well, no, there still is. We're, we're still to honor those relationships because, you know what, we're not really entrusting ourselves to our earthly leaders. We're ultimately entrusting ourselves to God. And because I trust God, because of that, I can obey an an earthly boss. Because I trust God, I can obey parents that may not have it all figured out. Because I trust God, I can uh, follow the social obligations uh, that that are normal. Those aren't completely eradicated as Christians. And so he's going to unfold this and apply this then to marriage. Because there's radical implications in a society where women were second-class citizens. Now all of a sudden in Christianity, they're made equal with their husbands. So what does that mean? So does that mean there's, there's no order because they are equal? Well, Paul says, you know what? There, there are still some traditional uh, orders of responsibility in the family, even though before God we're all equal. We're all the same. We're all sinners who are forgiven and accepted by Christ. So let's read the text, and hopefully with that context, it'll help it to make a little more sense. We're going to start in verse 21, so picking up the last verse from last week, uh, which sets the stage for this next few verses. Verse Uh, Chapter 521 says, submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. Verse 22, wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church, his body, and is himself its savior. Now as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit in everything to their husbands. I just have to say, uh, because this is so unpopular in today's day and age, I've said this uh, several weeks uh, we welcome you here. We, we're glad you're here if you think this is crazy. Like, we're glad for you to be here and just, and just listen. We want to have an opportunity, opportunity to plead with you and share with you how this is uh, for our joy and how this really does make sense. But if, if you think this is nuts, we're glad you're here and we want you to keep coming. So he says, I'll, I'll read it again. Uh, wives should submit in everything to their husbands. Again, in our culture, that sounds nuts. Verse 25 says, Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. This mystery is profound, and I am saying that it refers to Christ and the church. However, let each one of you love his wife as himself, and let the wife see that she respects her husband. Let me pray for us. God, we thank you for your word, and we recognize that it is radical. It doesn't always fit our own desires. It doesn't always fit the standards of our culture. And so I pray, Lord, that you would help us to hear what you have to say. Uh, allow us to not be tainted and confused by the messages of our culture or of the, the messages of traditionalism, but that we would really hear of what you're saying. We ask for your help. We ask for your spirit. and We ask that you would help us to know you. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, about 20... Well, I'm about to have my 20th anniversary, so a little more than 20 years ago, I began to fall in love with this woman that is my wife, right? Um, and I started to do crazy things, right? I, uh, I started to wear a belt. I started to wear a belt. Um, actually, I think she bought it for me. It was my first, my first belt. I, I started to wear a belt. Um, I started to shave every day. Um, shaving every day. I started to uh, wear cologne. I hadn't really done that before, right? Except for maybe a special event here and there. Um, I, I started to live differently. I started to adjust my life because I was pursuing this woman that I loved. I wanted her to be my bride. I was, I was chasing her. Uh, I would call her. I would want to spend time with her. I would want to take her out to nice restaurants. I began learning uh, how she saw the world and trying to understand who she was and getting to know her heart. I began to learn about finer foods and began to eat at places that didn't end in burger, right? Um, or begin with burger. I, uh, I began living my life differently. You could say really even sacrificially. I began sacrificing my normal ways of doing things to pursue her because I was in love with her. And the Bible again and again says that that impulse, that, that a man that maybe five years ago as a boy thought girls were weird, all of a sudden is just in passionate pursuit of a woman, he he says that that impulse, that romance, dating, marriage, courtship, uh, what almost every song on the radio is written about. This this greatest passion of humanity, God says that that gives you a picture into my love for you. That gives you a picture into my love for you. Now we've twisted it in different ways, right? And we can we can we can twist that picture, right? We can break that picture. We can shift it this way and that, but. But God gave that to us. And what we need to understand is that God's love for us is where romance and marriage and courtship comes from, not the other way around. God, God had a pursuing love for us. He had a pursuing, saving love for us. And that love made him decide to create this institution we call marriage. He said, I'm going I'm to then weave this into the fabric of their reality when I make humankind. I think that's so important for us to understand that that he loves first, and because of his love, we're to love him. And then we're given orders that then because of that, love should look like something in particular in Christian marriages. There really is a plan. There really is an order of what what love should look like. Um, As I said, it it doesn't always fit our cultural understanding, right? Our cultural understanding is very different. And I think it's helpful to understand just when you look at the history of the world um, that societies generally are either patriarchal or feminist, right? Uh, where do you think we fit on that scale? Um, well, if, if you're feminist, you think we're patriarchal. But really, if you stand back at 50,000 feet, we, we are really more of a feminist society. Now, I, I granted that uh, women don't have all the rights and all the benefits that, that men do in certain ways. You know, people talk about salaries and things like that. But in general, if you, if you were to look at the history of the world, and compare to other cultures. Yes, there may be some cultures out there today that are more feminist. But it's like, you know, we're here and they're here. And then here are these patriarchal uh, cultures where, where women are treated like dirt. And Christianity w- was the religion that, that pushed people towards feminism. Christianity was the religion that, that allowed women to be free. A- and then what happened is cultures have moved farther beyond what Christianity opened up the doors to, to this other extreme. And, and what I would argue is that there are patriarchal um, societies where, where men dominate and abuse women, oppress women. We, we don't want that. That's bad, right? And then there's the feminist extreme that says there's no difference between men and women. Men and women are the same. There's no place for a difference in roles and function. And I would say, you know what, That that's extreme as well. And Paul's answering that Uh, That lean, he's answering that bent here because again and again in Ephesians, we've been told we're equal before God, we're equal before God, we're equal before God. And then Paul says, but we still have roles to fulfill, right? You still have to obey your boss at work. A husband should still lead in the home. Parents should still lead their children. Um, There there are still relationships of authority and relationship that, that do matter. Yes, you're equal, but there also is a functional difference. And so as I articulate the idea that there are some, some somewhat traditional roles here that we should pay attention to in the family, I'm not articulating for this patriarchal extreme. That's what I want you to understand. There's a patriarchal extreme. There's a feminist extreme. What I would argue for is what we call biblical complementarianism, which says that we complement each other. We have different roles in the family. Again, it, it says uh, that wives are to submit to their husbands, not to every man uh, in the community, right? We well, Schmidt to just their husband, right? That's the order within the home, not just universally out there. Uh, and so we would say there's this role distinction within the home, uh, but we're not going for the extreme of patriarchalism, where, where men oppress women with their strength, and we're not going for the extreme of feminism, where there's no distinctions made. And I would argue just one more uh, general uh, argument before we get into the details of this, when you look out at different societies and cultures. Um, Are the cultures where men function as servant leaders, are are those the culprits? Are those the cause of the problems that we have in society? Or is the problem drunken, passive men and abusive, dominating men? I would argue that sociologically, the the problem in societies are men that either are are drunk and passive or abusive and dominant. Those are the two extremes. Those are the problems, right? And so in a culture that says men don't matter, well, well, we're inviting them, to retreat, to play video games and get drunk. In a society where it says women don't matter, we're, in, we're inviting them to be abusive and dominant. i say that Christianity says they're equal, but men should be servant leaders. They should take the responsibility. They should initiate and lead as loving, gentle, understanding servant leaders. So the first thing I want us to look at here in this text is the sacrifice of mission, right? Mission, it's built into the word submission, right? Look at verse 21. Twenty-one says, submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. Verse 22, wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church's body and is submitted to its Savior. Now as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit in everything to their husbands. And then the summary at the end of our section, all the way down at verse 33, it summarizes, restates the wife's responsibility in a different way. It said, Let the wife see that she respects her husband. Uh, We've talked about this before. When you survey the literature of the New Testament, a wife is nowhere commanded to love her husband. Isn't that strange? She's never told to love her husband. That's not what a man needs. A a man needs respect. A man needs honor. And, And if your man is retreating, if he's silent, if he's sullen, if there's distance there, I can almost guarantee he feels disrespected rather than unloved. And it's an important distinction to understand. This word, submit, means, it's literally a a military term, it means to arrange yourself under the mission of another, right? And so I have a picture here of some guys uh, clearing a a house, uh, a military operation. I want you to notice it may be hard to see where you are, but every gun is pointed in a different direction. Um, If if all the guys pushed the, the first guy out of the way and wa- wanted to be where he was, the operation wouldn't work right, right? I mean, you, you just, if you're going to function as a team, a team has to take different roles. That's just, that's just kind of common sense. And so Paul here is not saying, wives, you don't matter, be a doormat, uh, get out of the way. No, they're saying, arrange yourself under the leadership of your husband. See him as the head, see him as the... The leader, not because he's smarter, not because he's better, but that's just God's order, and it's his care for you. And it's going gonna, it's gonna to work better, because that's how God designed it. And I've said this before. Um, a lot of studies would indicate that women are smarter than men. But for some reason, God, God wants men to lead in the home. So, so it's not a matter of inequality. It's not a matter of, uh, of me or God or anybody else saying, yeah, women, you just can't cut it. You need the man to do it. For some reason, that's just how God's arranged it. God wants you to have the knight in shining armor. God wants you to have the man who sacrificially leads and takes on responsibility uh, to lead you well. And as you esteem him, as you build him up, as you encourage him that he can do it, as you arrange yourself under his mission and submission, as you respect him, as you honor him, that's going to greatly increase his ability to actually carry out that job. Uh, If you mother him, if you smother him, if you tell him he's an idiot like uh, on Deborah and everybody loves Raymond, right? That's not going to help him fulfill his task. God, God knows that your husband is an idiot sometimes, right? I mean, he knows that. We're not asking you to give respect based on our deserving of respect. We're asking for unconditional respect just as Christ loves us unconditionally. And so my question to you would be, um, why, why would we believe that unconditional love is important but not unconditional respect? Why would we make a distinction between those two things? Because it's, I think in our culture we do. I think, again, because we have a, a feminized culture, we would say, even if you're not a Christian, unconditional love, that's a good thing. Unconditional love is a good thing. Husbands should unconditionally love their wives. But, but we pull back on respect but I don't know about unconditional respect. I'm not sure, I'm not sure about that. He's got to earn my respect. Have you ever thought that in your mind? I'd respect him if he was more respectable. Have you ever thought that? But Yet we don't want, we don't want a husband to think that way about love. And, and I would just argue that, that men have different needs than women do. And what a man needs to be built up is he needs his wife to believe in him. He needs his wife to think he's a good man. He needs his wife to honor him. He needs someone to cheer him on. He needs someone in his corner. And that's going to look slightly different in different families. I think a way to start the conversation is maybe to start uh, wives interviewing your husbands and asking about when you've done it well, right? So to kind of you know, keep it from just going into a full-blown fight, maybe just say, hey, when have I done this well, right? Are there some examples or have other people done this well? Are there ways that, uh, or things that are said that, that make you feel honored? What, what do those things look like? What are the things that I've said that make, you feel, that make you feel really respected and encouraged? As I said earlier, there, there's nowhere in the New Testament where women are told to uh, love their husbands. There's one verse where if you were to do a word search in English, it would come up. Uh, it says, older women teach the younger women uh, to love their husbands. But it's a, it's a different word, right? It's phileo, right? So it's, it's brotherly love, right? So it's kind of like saying, wives... Uh, like your husbands okay we've we've talked about that before they want you to like them they want you to respect them they want you to uh, think that they're strong that they're powerful it's interesting this last word respect can can also be translated fear any any women here do you have little boys anybody here have little boys little boys like to be scary right yeah so i mean raise your hand if your little boys like to be scary yeah pretty much right um but your husbands do too okay just a little insight into the male ego that the man likes to be scary. It's not so much that he wants to be bad. It's that he wants to be strong, okay? And so th- this word respect is this idea of, of kind of a reverent awe. It's the idea of fear. It's like this, this guy's scary, right? People shouldn't mess with him. And, and when you can communicate that to your husband, that he's strong, that he's impressive, that you're proud to have hitched your life to him, that's, that's going to help him to grow. That's going to transform his heart. It's going to change the relationship. I, I think also, ladies, it's important to remember that you're raising your sons in an anti-testosterone uh, culture. You're raising your sons in an anti-male culture. You're raising your sons in a feminist culture. So, so think about, what are ways I could even honor my son as a man, help him to grow to be a man? How can I uh, build him up so that he will feel stronger so that he will want to take on responsibility. What might that look like? And I would, again, encourage you to interview uncles and brothers and and dads and and read on the subject. The next thing that we see is the sacrifice of responsibility. The sacrifice of responsibility. Uh, There's this word used then for the male role, it's headship. And uh, Doug Wilson is a pastor that, I've always liked his definition of masculinity. He says it this way, gladly assuming sacrificial responsibility. He says that's what masculinity really is, gladly assuming sacrificial responsibility. And then to to connect the idea of authority and headship and responsibility, what he says is that uh, authority naturally flows to those who are willing to take responsibility. It's it's a natural order of things. And, And so what we would say is that, yes, women do a great job leading in the home. Yes, many there are sadly so many single moms out there. I was raised by a single mom where the mom has to carry that responsibility. She has to carry that load. But, but what God is saying is that the, the man should do that. He should take the initiative. And again, my, my argument is that if, um, if men were taking godly servant leadership, taking responsibility in a loving and sensitive way, that, that wouldn't wreck a society. That would build... A society. The problems in our cultures are men that are dominant and abusive and the men that just retreat, that just don't do anything, that just pull back. Ephesians 5.25 says it this way, Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. It's interesting that the women are just given a couple of verses here, and I, I do believe that in our culture what is said to the women is harder to hear because of where we are in culture but I believe what is said to the men is, is much harder to carry out, right? Because what's told to the men is, uh, you need to die. You need to die. That's your job. If you want to love your wife well, it means dying. It means taking up your cross and dying. Dying to yourself, sacrificing of yourself, taking responsibility that's not yours, taking initiative, serving your wife. Ephesians 5.25 says, Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her, that he might... Sanctify her, that's that word, Uh, it's a cognate of holiness, right? So it's like the setting aside, making something pure and special. Having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor, without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. So what it's saying is that Christ has purified us, sanctified us, saved us uh, as uh, this beautiful bride, cleaned us up. That's the, that's the gospel story. He has transformed us through his forgiveness and his death force on the cross. And what Paul is saying here is that that's how we're supposed to love our wives, sacrificially. We're supposed to love our wives so sacrificially that we actually make a difference in their life. We, we should fall in love with a beautiful woman, and our love should make her more beautiful. Like our, our sacrifice should make her eyes sparkle more. That's the call on a Christian husband. That we would give ourselves up for her. Verse 28 says, In the same way husbands should love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. For no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it, just as Christ does the church, because we're members of his body. Therefore a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. So he's quoting Genesis two twenty-four there, the very beginning of Adam and Eve brought together the plan, the design of marriage. The purpose is you leave your father and mother and you, you bond, you glue, you cling to that wife. There's a oneness now. And so Christian marriage is forever. Christian marriage is permanent. It's this forever bond of saying, I'm with you. I've, I've joked about before. It's, it's saying, you're the one I'm going to fight with for the rest of my life, right? Um, I just saw this in a sitcom the other day. The husband and wife were going their separate way and he said, well, we're just going to fight. And the wife said, I think you should stay so that we can fight. Like, it's worth it. Let's, let's fight this out. I'd, I'd rather us be together. And, and that's that kind of faithfulness of we, we will cling together. It's going to be good and it's going to be bad. There's going to be ugly days and beautiful days. That's the world that we live in. But there's a oneness there. There's a bond. He's saying that's, that's what it looks like. And so we should love our wives as our own body. We are one with them. And he gives these specific words here. Uh, nourish and cherish. So taking responsibility for our wife, loving her sacrific- uh, sacrificially means to nourish and cherish her. Now there's just obvious kind of physical meaning of that, right? Like we should, we should feed them, right? You should let your wife have food, okay? And also nourish, uh, nourish is feed. And then cherish, uh, we always think of cherish as an emotional word, right? Which it has that connotation here but it's also a a literal physical word. It means warm, okay? Uh, Husbands, you should warm your wife. I was convicted about this when we lived in the old 80-year-old historic home that we lived in. My wife was just cold all the time. I was convicted. Like, God commands me to keep my wife warm, right? Like, I need need to do more to make this house warm. There were uh, cracks in the floorboards, and when it was freezing, you know, two weeks of the year, the the cold air just would blow right up through the floorboard. So we had to insulate the house, right? It was, we had to buy space heaters. Actually, uh, my son bought these for my wife. She loves these. These are monkey socks, right? They're, they're wool and they have a leather bottom, so they're like these great warm slippers she can wear around the house. Um, I'll put the heating pad in, in the microwave for her and, and bring it to her, right? Um, that, like, that it should bring you joy, husbands, to literally warm your wife. It should literally bring you joy to put your arm around your wife and warm her up. That is one of her needs. That is a physical need. Keep her warm. I know you think she's crazy because she's always cold, but that's just God's gift to you because it's your job to warm her up. Okay. But there's also, of course, the emotional concept of that. We, we should feed emotionally our wives. We should feed spiritually our wives. We should warm emotionally our wives. We should warm spiritually our wives. Do you you even understand your wife? It's okay that we're different, right? Like no one's saying as a man that you need to be the same as your wife. You entering her world doesn't make you the same as her. It doesn't turn you into a sissy or a woman to care for your wife. It's a missional venture. We're, We're to love our wives as Christ loved the church. The responsibility is on us, right? We live in two different worlds. The responsibility is on the man to enter into his wife's world. A lot of us as men just get mad because our wives don't make sense to us and we just want to sit back and demand that they enter our world. God calls on us to take the initiative, to take the responsibility to enter into her world. Neither one of us makes sense to each other, but God says take the initiative, pursue her, figure out ways to nourish and cherish. What does that look like? It's going to look different in different families you need to ask your wife again i'm going back to the interview thing you need to ask her what, what does that look like for you to feel fed and full and content what are things i could say is there a is there a different tone in my voice i could use right you you, you probably don't want to speak to her the same way you speak to people at work because she's different peter talks about this about living with your wife in an understanding way as as the weaker partner and the more fragile partner it's this idea of she's fine china and what's fascinating is Peter combines that and says, uh, because you were both co-heirs. So he says, you're equal spiritually, so therefore understand that she's fragile and be sensitive and love her well. Again, the Christian view is not that women are secondary or, or second-class citizens. It's that they are equal, but we also recognize, biologically, there are just differences. We're made different. We've talked about this, I've mentioned this before in sermons, the, the concepts of like brain research now, or they show that... Um, you know, the boy's brain is just burned by testosterone in the womb. Y'all heard me talk about this before? I think I talked about the summer. The corpus callosum is literally burned by testosterone. There are less connections between the two hemispheres of the brain in the male body. I mean, we're, we're just different, right? And, and people speculate that maybe that's why we have this thing we call women's intuition because women have more connections from one side to the next and they can connect things in different ways. Where, and men are... Uh, thought of as being more linear right or you know they kind of get stuck one thing at a time because there's just less connections back and forth from side to side there's just there's real differences we we gen we are genuinely different they've done these i I, makes me sad that they've tortured babies like this but they've done these tests on babies even pinprick tests female babies from the womb are physically more sensitive than males They, they just feel things differently any of you ever taught kindergarten we have any kindergarten teachers here are boys and girls different? Yeah? Some, yeah. Yeah, boys and girls are different, right? Girls generally, again, not all the time, right? These are generalities. I know that, you know, there are variances on the scale, but generally, uh, girls have finer motor skill than boys. Generally, boys need to jump up and run around the room more than girls, right? There's just differences in the way that we're made. Generally, boys can bench press more than girls can. There's just these, these differences. And we're to use those differences to, to nourish. And cherish our wives to care for them Um, men ask your wives what does it look like how how can i love you well how can i do a better job and and be gentle with them right just give them one thing if you give them a list with more than three items they're not going to be able to handle that okay so probably just two maybe one okay maybe just one thing that would that would really be helpful okay Um, just just be patient with them and the other thing, again, a- as your husband's asking how he can better love you, remember, he needs respect. Affirm him. Say, you know what? When you do this, it makes me feel so loved. Speak to him positively. This is a win. Th- this is great. I, lo- I love this. This is really helpful when you do this. Build him up. Help him feel successful. And again, think about uh, what this may look like with your kids. Um, what does this look like with raising girls, dads? What does it look like to nourish and cherish your girls? Do you warm them? Do you love them? Do you hold them tight? Do do they know that you treasure them, that you adore them? It's a great little mini book by John Eldridge that says, You've Got What It Takes, Um, and it talks about just the difference uh, of what a girl needs from her dad and what a boy needs from his dad. It's really helpful. There's a lot of other books here as well on family and on marriage that you can look at after the service. They're just stacked here uh, on the stairs. Well, in the end here, he ties it all back to the sacrifice of Christ. That's where we started at the beginning of chapter 5, right? He said that we should be imitators of God as dearly loved children, uh, that our lives should reflect that aroma, the beautiful smell of the sacrifice of Christ. We talked about how that applied to the way we live, not in darkness anymore, not in immorality, but now in a new kind of purity. And that's all to reflect Christ's sacrificial love for us. And so going back again to verse 25, says, husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. So our love should reflect the sacrificial love of Christ. He's, he's the one that set the stage for us. He's the one that showed us what it's supposed to look like, that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word. So he might present the church to himself in splendor without spot or wrinkle or any such thing that she might be holy and without blemish. Um, throughout the Old Testament, um, almost, well, I would say just straight up R-rated stuff in the Old Testament that talks about the adultery of God's people, right? That we were a uh, bride that has not been faithful. So that's really the standard. And, and even Ephesians hit on that a little bit where it talks about us being children of wrath, children of disobedience, right? We've wandered, but God pursued us anyway and loved us. He wooed us back to himself, and so throughout the Bible, throughout the Old Testament, Israel is seen as God's unfaithful bride. And then there are these prophecies about God cleaning up his bride, restoring his bride, loving his bride. Hosea is this incredible story about this unfaithful woman and the, the just incredible faithful love of God, this pursuing love of God. And that, that's really all that is, all of that background Paul is drawing on here where he says that Christ loved his church that way. He cleaned us up. He forgave us. He restored us. He he beautified us. He made us right. He brought us back to himself. It says that we should nourish and cherish our wives just as Christ does the church. Christ feeds us. He, He warms us. He protects us. Verse 30 says, because we're members of his body. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. So again, the oneness of marriage symbolizes what? Verse 32, this mystery is profound. And I'm saying that it refers to Christ and the church. However, let each one of you love his wife as himself and let the wife see that she respects her husband. So we have this picture then of Christ restoring us, cleaning us, I was thinking about the Ring Around the Collar commercial when I was a kid. Those of you that uh, were watching TV in the 70s, you probably remember this one. Uh, she's checking out the collar there. Uh, white collars, those of you that wear a white collar, sometimes they just get dirty, right? It's just hard to get them clean. And you have to buy special cleanser. At the time, they were arguing, I guess, that whisk was the only thing that would do it. I think there's probably other things that might work. Um, but they would say, our brand, our soap, can get it clean. And what the gospel says is that Only the cross can really cleanse us. We're all sinners. We've all failed. We've all turned away from God, but only Christ can cleanse us. Only the sacrifice of Christ, only him giving up his blood is the substitution that we need, is the purchase of our life that we're waiting for. We're in bondage to our sin, and he sets us free through his sacrifice. So the first thing that we have to do is recognize that we're dirty, right? We have to recognize the ring around our collar. We have to say, you know what? I've I've wandered. I'm, I've sinned. I've I've done my own thing. I've worshipped created things instead of worshiping the Creator, and that's where the scriptures start. We have to come to that recognition. We have to come to see ourselves as, as an unfaithful bride. All all people, to see ourselves as an unfaithful bride that, that needs to be forgiven, that needs to be cleaned up, and needs to be brought back. And when we recognize that need, then then we just ask for forgiveness. We say, God, will you forgive me? Will you bring me back? Will you restore me? Will you love me? Even though I don't deserve to be loved and trust that that's the kind of God he is. He's the God that pursued us. Again, that the whole picture of marriage and courtship and love and romance and the subject of every song they hear on the radio should point us back to this mystery of Christ in the church. This incredible mystery of God's love for us. The most important things, the strongest needs, the strongest drives in our world are pictures that point us back to this hunger that we have that can only be satisfied with God. He's the only one that can save us. Ask Him to save you. Ask Him to forgive you. Ask Him to cleanse you. And then ask Him to help you to reorder your relationships so that your relationships would then be a picture, right? You don't want to be the sad country song, right? You want to be the really beautiful, sweet love song. I and mean, that's what you want your life to be. You don't want your life to be the song of betrayal, right? Because every song is about love. It's either about good love or bad love. You want your life to be the song of good love, right? You want your life to be the one that points people to the way things are supposed to be. doesn't mean perfect. Paul's not saying be perfect, never make mistakes, guys. He's saying continue to sacrifice, continue to love. Look at Christ and the sacrifice he made for you. Continue to sacrifice for each other. Let me pray for us. God, we thank you that you love us. You love us more than we love ourselves. And God, I pray that you would help us to enjoy and rest in your love for us. We ask that you would continue to remake our families, help us to love each other well. For those of us that are married, help us to love our wives sacrificially. And I pray that the wives would respect and honor their husbands. God, for those that are single, I pray that you would help them to build up those around them. God, help them to use the wisdom of how men and women are wired to build up your church, to encourage and to support, to live sacrificially, whether we are single, whether we are married, whether we're engaged, whether we've been married 50 years or two years. God, we pray that our lives would point people to you, that we would live out lives of of faithful submission and sacrificial love. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.